know this by heart, folks, but here we go. Simon, who repaired the sheep gate? Eliashab and his brothers, the priests. And the walls next to them. The men of Jericho. And the fish gate. The son of Hassanah. And next to them? Merimoth, the son of Uriah. And next to him? Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. And next to him? Zadok, the son of Barna. Banana? Barna? Barna. And next to him? The men of Tekoa, but not their leaders. And what about the gate of Yeshana? Joida, the son of Paseah. And next to him? Melatiah, then the men of Gibeon. And next to them? Oziel and the goldsmiths. Goldsmiths? Yes. Everyone played their part. And next to them? Hananiah, one of the perfume makers. A perfume maker who is a brickie? I've heard it all now. And next to him? Rephahiah, son of Hur. And next to him? Jediah, the son of Harumath. Harumath. And then? Hamush, the son of Hashabaniah. And then? Look, I'm getting a bit tired of this. How about me asking the questions and you giving the answers? Okay. So, who's next? Malkaija, who repaired the Tower of Ovens. And then? Shalom and his daughters. At last, some women <laughs> make an appearance. Who repaired the Valley Gate? Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa. And the Dung Gate, not a popular job. <laughs> Another Malkaija, son of Recap. And the Fountain Gate. Shalom with one of his daughters. And the wall of the pool of the king's garden. Shalom again. And next to him. Nehemiah. Nehemiah? Not that Nehemiah. Nehemiah, son of Azbuk. And then? The Levites. Reham, then Hashbia, then Barbai, then Ezer, then Barak. And after them? Merimoth. And then? The priests. Are we nearly finished? How many more? <laughs> Fourteen. Okay. <laughs> the next lot repaired the wall opposite their own houses. Benjamin, Hashub, Azariah, Binui, then the temple servants, they repaired the Watergate. Watergate? I thought that was in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Who was next? The people of Tekoa. Hold on. We've had them before. Are we going round for the second time? No. They had a second pitch. So, is that it? Well, yes, apart from more priests, Zadok and Shemaiah and Hananiah and Hanan and Meshulam and Malkijah and the goldsmiths and the merchants, which brings us back to the Sheep Gate. So how long was that? Four kilometres, two and a half miles. Wow, how wide was that? 2.5 metres, more than eight feet. And how high was that? Twelve metres! Though they only got up to six metres in this chapter. But it did include seven gates and 34 watchtowers. That's not bad for 52 days' work. Well done. <laughs> so we're going to test you on that at the end of the service. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's Nehemiah 3, and Bill will be very glad to hear that you've only got some bits of Nehemiah 4 to read. 
Yes, this reading is from <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 9 and 21 to 23. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones of life from those heaps of rubble, so <clears throat> the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burnt as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead, and that the gaps had been, were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as wo <coughs> workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Well, I think if we were looking for a picture of despair and broken dreams, we could do no better than to come to Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. You see, the thing is, we know how the story ended. If we could actually enter into a time machine and come back to when it was there, it was a pretty despairing place. The Jewish people were dissipated across the land. They were intermarrying with others. The symbol of their state, Jerusalem, was in ruins. There were warlords who were controlling the whole of the area and who intimidated anybody who was not actually on their side. The authorities, such as they were, were in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, which was 1,100 miles away, 55 days hard ride to get there. It was a place of devastation. Surely the Jewish dream was over. How was it that now we know little about the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Horebites and all the other small nations 
but we know everything about the Jewish nation. And you know, there is a parallel with us today because we may say, well, secularism has taken over. Our laws are no longer dedicated to what we believe to be Christian truth. Uh, There is radicalism in every part of the world. Children know nothing about the Bible. Sunday is no longer a special day. Perhaps it's time for us to just make peace with the enemy to allow, uh, get them to allow us to live in our little bubble and uh, to do no harm to others and then we'll be allowed to coexist. That was the situation that faced Nehemiah all those years ago. And today we reach the point where planning and preparation for restoring the walls in Jerusalem gives way to action. And we can learn three things from this because we are a Trinitarian church and all sermons come in threes. The first thing that we can learn is that everyone without exception has a part to play in this story. Chapter 3 is a who's who of the Jewish nation at the time. Both the returned exiles and those who were so insignificant that they weren't even taken into exile. And chapter 3 has all the hallmarks of being an authentic piece of the Bible. Authentic because why else would the writer bother to write all those names down that are in chapter 3? Authentic because archaeological evidence uh, suggests that that wall of Jerusalem stretching for two and a half miles was built and was built by amateurs. It was not the strong building that we see that came in years later, the years following. And that's because the builders were all amateurs. Uh, there, was, uh, there were the poor perfume makers, there were the goldsmiths, the uh, priests, the temple functionaries, the district governors, community teams from places like Gibeon and Tekoa, which were some miles from Jerusalem. So it wasn't just Jerusalem that was dealing it. These people were building, even though they were not builders. And they worked from dawn until dusk for for 52 days with sword and shovel. And then they built this amazing construction in that time, just over seven weeks, two and a half miles long, eight feet wide, 20 feet high. 34 watchtowers, seven gates. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. So that's the first thing we learned, that everyone, without exception, regardless of their skills, took part. The second thing that we learn is that inspired leadership is critical to success. It's hard to underestimate uh, the part that Nehemiah himself played. He was a man who was seized not by the obstacles, but by the vision. It was his enthusiasm and confidence in God's ability, not his own, that inspired, literally, breathed life into this dispirited people. It was he, in chapter 2, who told them of his vision, and they responded and said, let's get building. Now, Nehemiah didn't roll up 
with a group of builders and stonemasons and carpenters to say, let's take over and do the job. He started with what he'd got, this dispirited people, and he built the vision. It was like offering the five loaves and two fishes to Jesus to see what could be done. And Nehemiah seems to be uniquely gifted in as much as he not only was a man of vision, but he was a man of practicality too. Very often those gifts come in two different people. Bishop Joe, who introducing the Archbishop of Canterbury last week, said that uh, uh, every day uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury would come into the office and he'd say to the team, I've had an idea. And they would all run for cover because he was the man with vision and they were to be the people with practicality to make it happen. But just think about uh, Nehemiah. When he's approached uh, by Artaxerxes, he knows exactly what to ask for. Letters of authority, wood from the local trees from around Jerusalem, all those sorts of practicalities. When he arrives in Jerusalem, what does he do? He goes out at night to sound out the ground to go around the city in its ruins and to discover what needs to be done. He then excites the people uh, with a speech which obviously inspired them. And then he organizes them into groups so that different people, different clans within Israel should take on different parts of the work. And then he makes sure that the materials are there. How frustrating it can be if you call everyone together and they say, ah, we've forgotten the wood, or we've forgotten the stones, or we've forgotten this or that. But he had got that all organized. And when, when the issue of security came, he organized that too, so that you have a spear in one hand and a shovel in the other, and you get things going. He was a truly remarkable man, and he was an inspired leader. The third thing that we learn is that making progress is rarely all plain sailing. Making progress is rarely all plain sailing. You see, while the Jews were bumping along quietly in their own little community, the people around didn't really matter about them. They could do that. They were harmless. But when they started doing things which asserted the truth they stood for, that's when opposition came. That's when Sanballat and Tobiah uh, brought them along. It prompted first ridicule, then anger, then threats, then sowing seeds of doubts in the Jews who were less convinced. And you can see more of that if you read the whole of chapter 4. Making progress creates opposition. I was talking to Robert yesterday. Some of you know Robert Kamara. And he was talking about his experience in Iran where he said the Christian church is happily coexisting uh, with the main Muslim uh, leadership until they start breaking out of their little churches and start uh, dealing with the truth that needs to be shared with their Muslim brothers and sisters. That's when the opposition comes. Okay, now that's the three things that we learn and now we're going to apply those three things to ourselves here as we seek to rebuild our community. Let's take the first of those. What about everyone playing a part? The thing that strikes me about the account in chapter 3 is that the people put their hand to things 
that they had never done before. Their value lay not in their innate ability, their value lay in the fact that they were ready to work together as a team. Now, it's not entirely clear to me what in military or political terms the value of the wall was. Have you ever thought about that? Clearly, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was not going to be a place where rebellion against Artaxerxes could take place. He wouldn't have allowed it if that was the case. So it wasn't as a defensive, uh, uh, rebellious uh, mechanism against the Persian Empire. If you think about it also, the people of uh, the Jews were spread far wider than Jerusalem. So it wasn't simply to identify Jerusalem as a solely Jewish city. All we do know is that the broken walls of Jerusalem symbolized the dispirited nature of the people of God. And we know that God wanted that rebuilt in order that their spirit should return. And you know, there's something about working together that is so important in its own right, almost regardless of the objective. You don't want to create work just for its own sake. But the actual objective is sometimes less important than us working together. Doing things together is inspirational, regardless of the outcome. We know that the wall was pretty, pretty rubbish. It was made of rubbish, and we know that it didn't last forever. It had to be rebuilt. Um, uh, and yet, what was important was that the broken wall symbolized dispirited nature and God wanted to change that around. You know, some of the best life group meetings that I've been involved in is where we haven't studied the Bible at all. We've got outside to do some gardening together or I remember we went um, uh, cleaning up litter on the roads. It was doing things together that brought us together and that created a huge impact. I was at the Oasis meeting on Tuesday and one of the wonderful things there was that people were there solely to welcome. There were others who were doing things but there was people there in order to bring people in and make them not feel uh, that they were on their own. The other thing that, about this work that I think is important is that it didn't last forever. 52 days, seven and a half weeks. No doubt some who had not started out as builders, discovered a gift in them and became builders on a long-term basis. But most of them would have gone back to their perfume-making or to their goldsmithing or to their managing of the temple. What was important was that they had discovered the importance of being in a team. They had a new depth of togetherness, what we would today call fellowship, that stayed with them. And they kick-started the revival. Others would have taken over the work afterwards. You remember Tom's message last week where he talked about there were three priorities that we were looking for as we come out of uh, lockdown. And one of those was building teams. Building teams. Valuable in itself because it helps to do a task. But beyond that, it also then creates growth. Now think about this. I asked Tom 
and uh, Helen beforehand, what are we short of in terms of brickmakers at the moment? We're short of people to welcome in the church and to be stewards just to keep the services smoothly run. We're looking for people who will be part of the coffee rota and of the hospitality in the church. We're looking for those who will take part in children's and youth work. And you'll have seen from Tom's letter that there's going to be an evening for people who might be interested in that on the 18th of October, Monday week. Can you think of yourself, oh, hold on a minute, I'm a perfume maker, I can't do that. But maybe God is calling you to go outside your comfort zone and to be involved. And whether you're good at it or not in human terms, really doesn't matter. It's being available that counts. So that's uh, uh, everyone playing their part. The second thing was about the importance of inspired leadership. And the second of Tom's priorities for us was re-envisaging... I knew I'd get that wrong. Uh, Having a new vision. (laughs) (laughs) A vision is important. And leadership at every level needs inspiration if their work is to continue. It might be Boris Johnson, who is a leader. He is a leader whether you voted for him or not, and we need to pray for him. Justin Welby is a leader. We need to pray for him. Tom is a leader. We need to pray for him. Your house group leader is a leader. You need to pray for them. Because if they're doing it in their own strength, it'll last as long as their own strength lasts. And that's not going to be forever. So we need to provide that support. I've scoured the book of Nehemiah, and there's not much evidence of a group supporting him, but I'm sure it was there. He was not a lone individual. He would have had people who were prepared to support him. There are so many examples, aren't there, both in the church and outside the church, of leaders who are found to fail in some important area. Why is that? Because if you strike the shepherd, you get the sheep as well. There are people who are falling into ill health as a result of being leaders. And there's apparently no link between uh, that and their leadership. But be sure of this. There will be opposition and those leaders need our support. They require us to pray for them, to give them encouragement to respond when they make requests of us, and also to give honest feedback. The sign of real friendship is when you can say that you think something needs to change in the person or in the leadership they're giving. If it's done in love, then that's supportive leadership. It's no good being silent in those areas. And we need to be very sure that before giving that honest feedback, feedback that we're not ourselves undermining the God-given vision that they had. Read chapter 4 for that, where some of the Jews who were not sure about whether or not Nehemiah was doing right were counselling him to just ease back a little bit. That's not supportive leadership. 
And then thirdly and finally, what about the prospect of hitting problems and generating opposition? Well, there's not a lot to say about this other than that if we do grasp the vision, if we do run with it, then we can be sure that there will be trouble ahead. We don't know what form that trouble will take. It might be somebody falling um, from grace. It might be somebody falling into ill health. It might be people outside the church or outside our Christian connections uh, uh, who is offended by what we do. What can we learn from Nehemiah? Two things he did. First of all, he took everything that was a problem back to God in prayer. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, uh, when Bill was reading chapter 4, he was talking about uh, a re- an account of the mockery uh, that the, uh, the uh, opponents had. And then, almost like in the same sentence, he said, Hear us, O Lord, for we are despised. It's as if his conversation with people around was a conversation with God as well. So he took those issues, those, those disappointments back to God and sought God's strength. And the second thing he did was he persevered with the vision. Do not be afraid of them, he told the people. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's in chapter 4, verse 14. So two things then. Take every obstacle back to God in prayer and keep unhesitatingly with your eyes on the task and not on the problems. So there we have it. All of us have a part to play in building God's kingdom here, short term or long term. All of us benefit from inspired leadership, which in turn benefits from support and commitment. And all of us can anticipate setbacks which will respond to prayer and perseverance. Amen.